This podcast is sponsored by 10 of those. If you're at the recent T4G conference, you probably went to the bookstore. It was run by 10 They want to serve the local church by bringing the best books from across the publishers at super low prices to conferences and churches across America. So if you're involved in running a conference or perhaps you have a women's retreat coming up or a church anniversary weekend, invite 10 to provide a pop-up bookstore. There is no charge for them to come. They'll recommend resources and serve you really well, taking care of all the stock, the cash register, sales tax, etc. And they come for conferences and churches of 300 people or more. They can also help you if you're doing things online. They can provide you with a customized online bookstore for your church, and there's no charge for that either. Email their team to get your bookstore set up. That's sales.us at 10 Sales.us at 10 Baptist 21 is a pastor-led voice for Southern Baptists in the 21st century. The B21 podcast will discuss current issues in the SBC with Southern Baptist church leaders. To check out more resources, visit us at baptist21.com. Well, welcome to the Baptist 21 podcast, where we have conversations about what it means to be Baptist in the 21st century. Uh, and today on the podcast, we're going to talk about uh, a massive decision that came down last week, a momentous uh, moment in our history as a country, that being the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. I have with me a returning guest to the podcast, uh, Andrew Walker, professor of ethics and apologetics at Southern, executive director of the Carl Henry Institute for Evangelical Engagement. Thought he'd be really helpful for us to think through uh, all that's gone on uh, last week, how we got to that moment, where we go from here. And so, Andrew, thanks for being on the podcast, man. Hey, thanks, Nate. Glad to be with you. Always good to talk to you. All right, let's start here. Uh, if somebody's been living in a cave for a week or so, catch them up. What actually happened? Kind of, you know, what was the ruling? Where are we at right now? Sure. So on Friday, June 24th, a little after 10 a.m. Eastern Time, uh, the Supreme Court handed down the Dobbs decision. And the Dobbs decision, in my view, uh, it it did one thing, but did one thing two different ways. Uh, the big picture is it overturned Roe v. Wade. Um, and it did that effectively in two ways. Uh, first and foremost, Dobbs did away with this arbitrary viability test that the Supreme Court in Roe in 1973 had implemented. Um, and one of the aspects of the majority opinion was to say, uh, what the Supreme Court did in 1973 was legislating from the bench, which is not what courts are designed to do. Um, the Roe decision didn't make any pretense uh, to be anything other than effectively judicial policymaking. Um, and the viability test is incoherent. Uh, and it makes no, you know, why is a child unworthy of legal protection at uh, 33 weeks? in the womb, but not at um, nine weeks in the womb. And so uh, the, the, the Dobbs decision takes aim at that. But then it did something else. Uh, it also took aim at a second court case, KCV Planned Parenthood, which was in 1992, which ratified Roe v. Wade from 1973. And what Dobbs did was to basically poke holes in what was called this undue burden test that Casey was relying upon. And uh, once again, in the majority opinion, Justice Alito argues that uh, the, the the Casey decision understood that Roe was actually bad precedent, 
And so in order to continue abortion legally, they needed to create some new foundation for it. And they created this, this undue burden test. Um, and then in the majority opinion, Alito cites Justice Scalia's dissent from that 1992 opinion, where Justice Scalia says the problem with an undue burden test is that it's a standardless standard. Who decides what is an undue burden? That's not a judge's job. That's a policymaker's job. So that's kind of what happened legally. There's a lot more that happened in the weeds that we might discuss, um, particularly as it relates to morality and worldview that I think kind of Christianity and Christians will want to explore. But I think the big picture is we want to see Friday's ruling as an unambiguous win. It was the work of five decades of political activists, scholars, uh, and I think perhaps more importantly, uh, a pro-life movement that put its money where its, where its mouth was uh, and actually has been being the pro-life witness that we knew that Christians were going to be, which is to serve women and children. Uh, and so, it, listen, Friday was just a win. <laughs> I feel like right now in evangelicalism, we're in this constant mode of despair. We can't just celebrate a win as a win. Friday was a win. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't the ultimate win because we should be very clear that all that the Dobbs decision does is to shoot this issue back to the states. Um, it, it, it does remove a constitutional right to abortion, um, but now there's 50 debates right. happening nationwide, uh, and so uh, the the debate is just entering a new frontier, which means individuals, wherever they're listening to this podcast, have more to do now in their states, uh, more to do locally than they did previous to last Friday. So again, I, I think the, the work begins anew uh, in a different way. Yeah. And I want to ask some questions about that probably towards the end, just practically, where do we go from here? Still sticking with kind of just the mechanics of what happened Friday. Um, did the justices, it was a five, three, one decision. I want you to help me unpack that. So yeah. this basically and quote unquote voted along their considered conservative yeah. liberal lines, but would yeah, unpack that kind of, how did the justices fall? Why five, three, one? What does that mean? Yeah. So um, you had uh, five, one, three, it is an odd decision. Okay. You had uh, justice Roberts uh, writing this, third way route. I mean, this is honestly, as an aside, this is like a failure of kind of third wayism. It, it, it convinces no one and leaves you out on this island where like you're just by yourself and it's not really convincing to either side. Um, you want to at least say to the court's liberals, like, I think you're wrong, but I at least expect, I, I at least respect the intellectual consistency of you trying not to make this an actual constitutional argument that you're, you're again, doubling down on making this just a policy argument. Um, in fact, if you read the dissenting opinion, they don't make a pretense for this to be overtly legal or constitutional. It's basically abortion is something that's ingrained in our nation. So therefore let's keep abortion legal. Hmm. Um, but then justice Roberts writes this opinion saying that I would have upheld the Mississippi law that would have moved viability back uh, to 15 weeks rather than rows roughly 20 or 24, but I would I would have upheld a right to abortion. The problem with Justice Roberts's position is he doesn't provide a rationale for why he would allow that continued right to exist. 
Now, listen, I'm not a lawyer. I do read a lot in the law. I'm very familiar with the law. Um, my opinion is that Justice Roberts is actually the biggest loser in Friday's decisions because he couldn't get anyone else to join him. And he tried to split the baby, so to speak, in very, very unconvincing ways. Um, so that brings us to the majority opinion, where it was the court's kind of five generally reliable conservatives writing um, writing a, a pretty standard opinion regarding the problems with Roe. Um, if you've been following the pro-life uh, legal movement for the last 50 years, you would recognize all the arguments that were made in Alito's majority. Uh, really, Alito's majority opinion was an omnibus of a collection of arguments that conservatives have been making for the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last thing I'll say here is Justice Thomas wrote this concurring opinion that, I mean, if you're asking me what was the most breathtaking thing, well, I should, let me rephrase that. Um, the most breathtaking thing is Roe getting overturned. The most um, kind of like uh, red-pilled thing that happened on Friday was Justice Thomas's concurrence, where um, he took aim at this this legal mechanism called substantive due process, which is a mouthful. But basically what he said is this, um, the vehicle that progressives have relied upon to advance their legal agenda, it's constitutionally illegitimate, and we should abandon that as any pretense of legitimate constitutional jurisprudence, which means Griswold, Lawrence, Obergefell, he he admits, ought to be reconsidered, which caused the left to come unglued, which I mean, right now we're seeing the attempted cancellation of Justice Clarence Thomas right now. So that's in big picture what the 513 breakdown looks like. That's helpful. Uh, this is a, a you know Baptist 21 podcast. I would love to just know and, and talk through as much or little of this as you want, but kind of historically, where have Southern Baptists and even you worked for a time for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, where has the ERLC and Southern Baptists stood on this? Because in yeah, early days, complex. it was not a good place. So talk us through just a little bit of the history of kind of where we've been on this topic. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there's bad news and good news. The good news is I would say nationally, the Southern Baptist Convention would be regarded as the most pro-life Protestant denomination in the United States. Um, so that's wonderful as far as kind of modern day where we are as Baptists. That's not where this started um, in 1973. Uh, around the 70s, you had Baptists really, really equivocating on the issue of abortion. Uh, a lot of reasons they did that. One, they associated opposition to abortion as basically a uh, a holy Catholic issue. So that's what Catholics care about. Um, they do natural law. That's not what we do. We do something different. Um, we rely on our kind of private subjective interpretations of scripture and Christians disagree on the Bible's teaching on abortion. So therefore we're not going to say there's one uniform interpretation. So you had individuals like Foy Valentine, who was one of the presidents of the ERLC before it was called the ERLC, who was a stalwart pro-choice um, proponent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, you, if we're talking about Baptist identity, and I think this is really relevant here, you had this concept of soul freedom at stake, which was this, I, I think it's a pretty bankrupt idea, all things considered, where you get to have your private interpretation. It's just you, you in the Bible, no one else, and no one can hold you to account for your interpretation. Uh, this has 
so many profound ecclesiological, ecclesiological and hermeneutical problems to it. We don't have time to go into that. Um, but listen, starting in, I think around 1988, you have Richard Land uh, take the presidency of the ERLC. And Richard Land is a hero of the pro-life movement um, in the United States. Uh, I, I texted him on Friday to say, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for all the work that you did. And I, I put up a tweet expressing appreciation because you had someone like Richard Land, who I think was, was monumental in helping shift the denomination, yeah. uh, the, the, the nation's largest Protestant denomination to this substantively pro-life ethic. Um, and so right now, I mean, um, you know, the ERLC is currently with an, uh, an interim president or acting president with my friend Brent Leatherwood. They're doing great work representing um, the views of Southern Baptists on the life issue. Uh, they have the Psalm 139 project. They're helping to get ultrasounds placed in crisis, uh, pregnancy crisis centers. And let me just say this too. Samuel Alito's opinion actually mentioned um, the use of technology and helping shed light on the barbarism of abortion. And so it just reminded me, like, this is not purely an academic argument. It's, it's boots on the ground, um, Southern Baptists using their tithes to helping get ultrasound machines into clinics. And we know statistically, someone who sees an ultrasound image of their child is much more likely to keep their child. So um, we have a lot of more work to keep doing at the, at the state policy level that Southern Baptists and their local kind of ethics commissions need to be engaged on. Um, but listen, there's a lot of debate going on in SBC life about who we are. One thing that we can't question who we are is pro-life. I'm thankful for that. Yeah. Did that shift kind of take place along the lines of the conservative resurgence? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I, I would be hesitant. I'm not a historian here um, precisely, but I think we would mark, um, I, I would say people in the pews were probably always more pro-life than some of the denomination's leadership, which tended to be a little bit more moderate and liberal in those 70s and 80s. Um, so I think grassroots SBC, uh, predominantly, overwhelmingly, perhaps even pro-life. Um, a part of the conservative resurgence was flushing out of the system those moderate social ethics. And I think we were successful in that. Yeah, good. I want to ask a question, even though you're a scholar, writer, I, I would just be curious, uh, what were you, kind of the initial thoughts and emotions when you saw that come down? I mean, I I, I was, it's funny, we were get in the car, get going to go to the beach. We were visiting my my in-laws and we're just going to go spend a couple of hours at the beach. And literally I saw it as soon as I started the car. And I'll never forget that. Like I, I remember yeah. I tears in my eyes. But yep. love to know was kind of, what was your initial reaction when you saw, I mean, you kind of knew this was coming from the league, yeah. but when it happened, what were you thinking? Oh, I've been following this super closely. been talking to like insider court friends who, you know, who are watching this just as closely as I am. Um, I think this is one of those moments that we're going to look back on where you ask, where were you when Roe is overturned? And um, I was sitting at my computer <laughs> hitting refresh on Twitter because I was following some friends who are stalwart court experts. Um, and I actually, I had turned my head for a second and then came back and uh, I saw a tweet and then I saw a, a, a quick string of tweets and I couldn't believe it. I was just, I was flabbergasted. I had this moment of exhilaration and um, a moment of being overwhelmed. You know, I'm thinking of the, uh, yeah, I was verklempt, you know, I was a little overcome with tears for a second. Cause I, I was just like, I can't believe this. I mean, I was talking to some students of mine from Southern 
in 2008, 2009, when I started as an MDiv student, no one thought that we would see a future where Roe would be overturned. Yeah. And so here we are. Um, I, it, it was unbelievable to see this. Yeah. Um, and, and then t- to me, you know, I'm the editor of World Opinions alongside Dr. Moeller. And so we had had this plan in place to get columns out ASAP that day. And so Friday, um, my day was obliterated from a productivity standpoint because I was responding to SCOTUS stuff. But you know what? I was never as happy in my life to have my day interrupted. It was such a good news. Yeah, good. Yeah, I, I would feel the same exact way. I, I just, you know, you, you believe in the the sovereignty of God, the power of God. It just was one of those things where it did see, you didn't see a path forward on this even a decade ago or a little more than a decade right. ago. It's just amazing to see. I'd love to talk about the reactions a little bit. So kind of um, thinking through, how, how do you think Christians should have reacted? You talked about that a little bit, but then have you been surprised by some of the other reactions or maybe even say lack of reactions of some? Yeah. Um, some of you have said we we shouldn't celebrate this. Uh, I, I, obviously, you disagree. So, how how should Christians have reacted? Have you been surprised at some of the reactions or non reactions? Yeah, take it and run with that. So, listen, we should celebrate this. We absolutely should celebrate. Now, there's a fine line, somewhat of a, a subjective line between celebration and gloating, but. I want to celebrate, and I'm not sorry for celebrating. And in fact, just a few minutes before the opinion came down, and I had no knowledge it was going to come down that day, I put up on Twitter, um, I said something to the effect of, to all of our evangelical thought leaders, let me disabuse you of trying to third way your response um, when this comes down. Just take the W, celebrate, uh, don't go to the Atlantic and talk to us about how this is actually a setback for the church, or this is actually a setback for the pro-life movement. Don't do that. Cause I knew that was going to happen um, among certain evangelical voices. Uh, now, all in all, I think I've been pretty happy with the response. Uh, a couple things I would say that I think are problematic. One is this talking point where you're seeing certain figures say, church, it's time to show up. You know, you've got to, you've got to put your money where your mouth is. And my response is to that, like, we've been doing that. Um, so, like, I just wouldn't buy the assumption that, uh, you know, the pro-life movement is just beginning. No, it's been, it's been in process for 50 years. This is simply a, a new chapter of it. Um, we know from polling and social science data that church-attending Christians are some of the most generous uh, of their resources and of their time uh, around this particular issue. So. I would say, you know, ignore the Christian leaders who are using this opportunity to shame you for not doing enough. Um, you know, I, I don't think that's that bears um, reality to, to, to boots on the ground on Sunday. Mm. At my church, I go to Highview Baptist Church. My pastor, Aaron Harvey, who I love, um, we actually have a member in our church who runs the Louisville, um, one of the largest Louisville pregnancy uh, resource centers. He brought her up on stage uh, to talk about the decision and what we as a church and what we as individuals can do. And I think that's that's exactly an appropriate response. I saw a lot of pastors putting pastoral prayers out in response to this. That's exactly correct. I mean, we should see June 24th, 2022 as just like we do January 1st, 1863, which was when the Emancipation Proclamation dropped. The Emancipation Proclamation didn't end the debate because there was still a conflict going on. 
but it was be- it was the beginning of the end of abortion or um, of slavery. I think we can look at January or June 24th, 2022 as the beginning of the end for abortion, hopefully. Um, so I think, you know, we want to keep the message moving forward that uh, all human life, regardless of size, level of development, um, it's where it, is, where it exists environmentally, whether in a womb, outside of a womb, uh, all of life bears intrinsic dignity that we as Christians are called to defend uh, and speak up on behalf of. This podcast is sponsored by 10 of those. If you're at the recent T4G conference, you probably went to the bookstore. It was run by 10 They want to serve the local church by bringing the best books from across the publishers at super low prices to conferences and churches across America. So if you're involved in running a conference or perhaps you have a women's retreat coming up or a church anniversary weekend, invite 10 to provide a pop-up bookstore. There is no charge for them to come. They'll recommend resources and serve you really well, taking care of all the stock, the cash register, sales tax, etc. And they come for conferences and churches of 300 people or more. They can also help you if you're doing things online. They can provide you with a customized online bookstore for your church, and there's no charge for that either. Email their team to get your bookstore set up. That's sales.us at 10 Sales.us at 10 yeah, so I had a question later on where I was going to ask, is this similar to the Emancipation Proclamation in the sense of that did not end slavery, there was still more work to be done, uh, but yet it was a you know, significant kind of uh, stake in the ground moment. And so to hear you say that, uh, what, going back a little bit to some of the reactions that have been negative, what do you, what do you think is kind of underneath, um, as best you can observe, like what's underneath those reactions um, and maybe even think through counsel you would have for people who might be struggling with celebrating a decision like this. Yeah, I mean, I can only kind of conjecture on on why some individuals say what they say or, or don't say anything at all. I think on the one hand, um, there's a certain constituency in evangelicalism that is unable to give President Trump any favorable acknowledgement. Um, and I think that's a shame. I think it's intellectually dishonest. Um, I think intellectual honesty demands us to say two things. Uh, President Trump is owed a lot of gratitude and acknowledgement for the Supreme Court justices that he chose, um, but he's not solely responsible for this as well. Um, so I think if you if you stress one to the neglect of the other, I think that's being intellectually dishonest. Uh, and so I think that's a shame, right? I mean, if you're being held captive to partiality, that's a problem. Um, I think some are afraid of being associated with like, you know, a culture warring religious right type Christianity. Um, to that, I simply want to say, thank God for the culture warring boomers. Yeah. I really just not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, we can disagree on some of the tactics of the religious right. I would critique some of the tactics of the religious right. Um, but you know what? History regards individuals like Richard Land as architects of the religious right. And I'm not going to say Richard Land has done everything perfect, but I respect the heck out of Richard Land. And I'm really thankful for uh, the monumental steps that he played in helping bring about these types of moments. So I just would plead for us to rejoice where we can rejoice. We don't have to be hacks who are drooling over ourselves, fawning over former President Trump. Um, But we also don't need to be intellectually dishonest curmudgeons who can't just acknowledge 
the fact that President Trump did what he did and to say, you know what, I may not have liked President Trump, um, but I can acknowledge that this was a great outcome and I'm very thankful for it. Where do you think uh, it, it, with this decision, you already starting to see co- tons of news, federal government saying they're going to do certain things. Kind of where do you think those who are pro um, choice, who are for abortion, where do you think they go from here? And again, I even saw news yesterday that federal government's considering even taking federal land in states that would abolish or that would outlaw abortion and then using it for abortion purposes. Where do you think they go from here? Because certainly they're not going to give up without a fight. Um, so I'd be curious what you think. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we're going to see the cruelty and mendacity of the left on display here. I mean, Elizabeth Warren has a tweet out where she wants to file legislation that a- attempts to intimidate pregnancy resource centers. I mean, I, I lack the moral vocabulary for the uh, vocabulary for the moral outrage that that is. I mean, it's stunning. Um, so you're going to see a White House take every last measure that it can to try to etch abortion wherever it can. So that's going to look differently in different states. In California, it's been announced that they're going to try to codify uh, the right to abortion in their constitution, whereas states like where I live in Kentucky on, on uh, in November, we're going to be voting on a, an amendment to a state that the Kentucky Constitution does not have a right to abortion in it. And I hope to hope to see that pass. Uh, but then you're going to also see the executive branch of the uh, federal government do whatever it possibly can uh, through administrative uh, rulemaking, whether through um, HHS department in particular. Um, we just saw recently where Secretary Xavier Becerra, who is, I mean, he's a moral monster, Nate. I don't know of a better way of saying this. Um, he is talking about uh, finding federal lands in red states and using those to set up effectively field hospitals to administer abortion. Uh, Listen, again, I'm at a spot where I don't have the vocabulary to register my moral disgust with that action. Um, That is, uh, that's a living monument to Romans chapter one and shame on us. Uh, and we should only pray for God's mercy that he doesn't smite us for what we deserve and having leaders like that. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you just want to take take a step back and think this is what we're actually trying to defend if you're defending a pro-choice position. And it's like it just is a testament to uh, the powers of darkness. It's a testament to being 50 years in a culture that says this is OK and the catechizing of that culture uh, to not just be outraged at, at what this is, uh, is, is, yeah. I mean, again, to even see some of the tweets that have come out, even people speculating that there'll be, uh, you know, uh, businesses who will pay for their right. women workers to fly somewhere so they can have, have their, their child aborted, um, is just, yeah, again, it, I, I, I said Sunday, we have to remember our, our war is not against, uh, flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers and the lashing out of the, of the, yeah, the powers of darkness will be strong. And I think the church has to certainly be ready. Yeah, let me speak to that for just a second. I mean, on, on two levels, we don't lash out against flesh and blood, but it does mean that we can't organize and we can, we can vote with our feet um, with where we shop. Um, we can vote practically as far as uh, entering the ballot box and not letting figures into office that are going to intentionally uh, instill and codify uh, injustice into our, into our laws. 
Um, something else you said I want to speak to is thinking about this from a philosophical standpoint and, and to really challenge the pro-choice or a pro-abortion side on this is philosophically, if you adopt the principles that go into the pro-abortion ethic, philosophically, you are required to carry those principles over to the same type of conclusion that would allow for killing toddlers or any human at any age outside of the womb. Um, because once you start saying that we can kill life at certain stages here, that's that's A, you're going to necessarily say B, which means you can potentially kill life over there as well. And so what I really want to convince Christians about um, and kind of my own like pro-life apologetics that I do is to say we have better answers um, around these issues. Uh, Crossway is giving away either free chapters or free copies of Scott Klusendorf's uh, The Case for Life. Um, as of right now, like we're going to have to double down on our pro-life apologetics. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that local churches could do on a Sunday night, right? Like have someone in the church lead a crash course on pro-life apologetics. And that's, that's a part of the church's ministry, right? To, to give an answer for the hope that is within us. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's to engage in apologetics. Just two or three more questions, I'll, and I'll get you out of here. But in the SBC right now, and, and we saw this a lot from the floor of the, of the convention in Anaheim, you kind of have this, this you know, you have people who would say they have an incremental view, an abolition view. For those who are not fully familiar with those things, could you unpack those a little bit and, and help us think through uh, those different terminologies and even just how we should think about both both of them? Yeah, I mean, the, the basic consensus pro-life position has been to pursue whatever measures possible that will reduce abortion. Um, it's it's kind of a political realist school of thought that says, um, you know, a constitutional amendment is not possible in this context. Um, some blue states are just completely uh, inhospitable to pro-life legislation. So, so um, wherever you can find an opportunity for a win, find the win. And that's the pro-life incrementalist view. The abolitionist view um, is a view that says uh, all individuals ought to be protected under the 14th Amendment, which I agree with philosophically and, and constitutionally. The issue I have with the abolitionist side is how do you go about implementing that principle? Um, it seems as though sometimes the abolitionist side uh, makes the argument that if you just declare abolitionism, that's going to bring about abolitionism. And that's just not how politics works. Politics is the art of the possible. Um, it requires drafting legislation, good legislation um, that uh, recognizes all parties in these situations. Now, listen, uh, hear me. I'm not entirely opposed to all of the arguments of abolitionism. I would say that I am a philosophical abolitionist myself, as as would you, for that matter. Uh, there's a question of political realism and political feasibility. Uh, and I think that's where the debate is. And I think it's a pretty heated debate. Yeah. Um, and I think we need to be as courteous and charitable as possible in this debate if we're going to be hanging together as a convention. And I think, listen, I think both sides can actually teach the other. I think the pro-life incrementalist view 
has a lot to say about political realism. I think the abolitionist side is correct in drawing absolute principles of justice. I think that they're actually right. And this is somewhat controversial to say they're they're right to ask questions about guilt and culpability in an abortive act. Um, And I think the law can make distinguishing characteristics in both individuals who get abortions and individuals who uh, actually perform the abortions. So I think there's I think there is some possible common ground to be had. Uh, But what I can tell you is it's going to happen over um, face to face interactions, not Twitter. Uh, I remember after the SPC convention in 2021, a good buddy of mine who's a dear brother I went to college with, who's an abolitionist. We were kind of locking horns a little bit. Um, and rather than just kind of bark at each other online, we had a Zoom call and we were able, able to talk through as brothers. Neither of us kind of convinced the other, but we all know that at the end of the day, we're after the same end, which is the end of ending of abortion. So let's let's be kind. Let's be forthright. Let's make good arguments. Uh, let's try to work together. Yeah, I think it's a good word. I think one of the things has been disconcerting with from the abolitionist side has been just basically acting like if you're not with me 100% on this, then you're then you're not pro-life. And I think that's right. a shame. And it's it, it's just a, it's just a simple way to shut down conversation in a way that's really, really unhelpful. Um, but I do think these are complicated issues and, and things that would could probably take on a whole podcast themselves. I do want to get you out of here just on some practical things. You've mentioned some things along the way, but kind of just speaking to both pastors, Christians in local churches. Since the work is not done, where do we go from here? You've, you've obviously mentioned maybe a Sunday night that has a, apologetics on pro-life uh, topics, but yeah, just kind of speak maybe as a, a thinker to help Christians think, okay, what, yeah, it's not done. Where do we go from here? What are some practical steps? And even maybe this, how vocal, I think you've addressed this a little bit, but how vocal should pastors be uh, in helping to address these issues? Yeah, let me start right there first. So I think pastors should be vocal on this issue. And, and here's my answer for that. Um, we need, when we think about, um, how to engage, there's a question of triage. Uh, I think that we should be giving the greatest amount of attention to those areas of our law where we can identify, uh, concrete, unequivocal injustice. Abortion is one of those. So let me take two issues, sex trafficking and abortion. We're all in agreement that sex trafficking is evil and abhorrent. But there's no lobby to mandate a constitutional right for sex trafficking. Right. There is on abortion. So sex trafficking exists kind of uh, on the margins, and you can't wipe sex trafficking out um, apart from the law stamping it out because human sin is going to create these types of, of uh, back channel uh, mafia-like rings, right? Uh, but we have a similar type of evil being positively advocated for when it comes to abortion. So I think pastors do need to be vigilant and to say, Hey, we care about all of these issues. It's not either or, but as a far, as far as kind of urgency and triage abortion is number one, the greatest killer in America today. Let's be very, very clear about that. Um, so I think big picture, we've got to keep this at the tip of the spear. Um, as far as what Christians are are caring about, we can't just kind of take a back seat and say, "Well, now that Roe's over, uh, we can uh, move on to bigger issues uh, like tax rates." No, let's not do that. 
but I think at the individual level, individuals need to get educated. They need to read. They need to engage in pro-life apologetics. Um, they need to volunteer at local crisis pregnancy resource centers. Uh, they need to uh, giving of their uh, resources financially. Uh, my wife and I are in the process of setting up a monthly recurring donation uh, to our local uh, cri uh, pregnancy crisis center because, I mean, and I'm embarrassed, like we should have been doing that more in the past, but I've always been of the mind well, that says, well, you know, my ministry on this is intellectual and writing, but I think the row moment makes me realize, no, I got to do more. I got to, I got to reinforce uh, what I'm doing and that this isn't just intellectual for me. I've, I've got to actually help fund the initiatives that are going to rescue those who are being brought to destruction and caring for those uh, in crisis situations. Hmm. I think we need to have churches that are, uh, as I mentioned, open to the idea of having apologetics courses where these types of discussions are happening. Um, third, what I love about the SPC and Protestantism more broadly is we're word centered. Uh, and so the, the priority of the preaching uh, on Sunday morning, um, mm -hmm. the pastor has tremendous ability to form and shape consciences. Mm -hmm. Um, we talk a lot about culture transformation, right? Uh, culture transformation is conscience formation. Mm -hmm. And so pastors faithfully preaching the word, shaping the consciences of those in their congregations, and then those in the congregations going and living the truths of the gospel as it applies to human dignity in all aspects of their life. Hmm. Andrew has been really helpful. Uh, certainly uh, just again, momentous decision last week, but there is more to be done. Uh, and so uh, thankful for just some thoughts there. Any final thoughts before we sign off? Yeah, Nate. Well, Hey, thanks for the uh, interview. And hopefully this was somewhat helpful. Um, I think we should just have gratitude right now. Um, you know, if you go and read the opinion yourself, and I actually would encourage everyone to go and read it. Uh, it's it's full of legal jargon, and there's a lot of technicality in there, but it is also actually readable, and lay readers can make sense of it. And a couple things that you'll see in the opinion that we should be grateful to God for. One is there was a silent revolution in that opinion, where Justice Alito says that laws that protect life at all stages of life receive what's called rational basis review, which that's legal jargon. But what that means is that the importance and value of life re receives the presumption of the state's protection. And that's, that's a new presumption. That's a new default that didn't exist prior to last Friday. The other thing I would say that we should be really thankful for is both Justice Alito and Justice Thomas um, really went after Justice Kennedy's jurisprudence uh, around the mystery of life. It's a famous passage in the 1992 Casey decision where he says the mystery or uh, the definition of liberty is to define one's own concept of existence, which is extremely relativistic, subjective. It's the height of expressive individualism and this idea of, of radical autonomy. Alito and Justice Thomas alike both chipped away at that and said, that that is, that is an unsustainable legal jurisprudence, and it would lead to untold numbers of social pathologies like prostitution and drugs uh, being made constitutional rights, and we can't do that. So what they did was they said liberty is good, 
we got to draw some lines around liberty. Liberty doesn't mean a blank check to do what you want. It's to do what you ought. Uh, and so even there, you have some categories in this supposedly legal document that is, a vo is void of morality, supposedly, that is channeling some really biblical truths without citing Bible verses. The idea that life has dignity and liberty is best understood as living underneath God's providence and underneath his reign, not against, not, not defined by human autonomy and human will. Good. Andrew, man, you've always been helpful to think through these topics. Appreciate you taking time to be on the podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Nate. Thanks for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. Thank you for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at our website, baptist21.com. Also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. It would really help us out. If you ever have thoughts or ideas for future interviews, please reach out to us at our email, baptist21 at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening to the podcast.